0: Hi, I'm Andrew, and this is Keen on Democracy. A chill is enveloping the world. Everywhere I go these days, the conversation is the same. Everyone is fearful about the fate of democracy in our digital age. The same worried question is on all of our lips. What or who is killing democracy? Everybody wants to know. There's certainly no lack of suspects. Trump, Putin's trolls, Mark Zuckerberg. Authoritarian populism, The Wall, Victor Urban, fake news, Brexit, Bolsonaro, surveillance capitalism, Erdogan, Twitter, or last but certainly not least, the president of the People's Republic of China, Xi Jinping. So what's up with democracy these days? Is it really dying? Or is it simply shedding its industrial analog skin and updating itself for our networked digital age? That's the subject of this podcast series. This is a show featuring conversations about the most important issue of our age with some of the world's most incisive thinkers. I hope it both provokes and enlightens. Carl Benedict Frey, the Oxford Martin City Fellow and co-director of the Oxford Martin Programme on Technology and Employment at the Oxford Martin School, Carl Benedict, you're also the author of an extremely important new book, The Technology Trap, Capital, Labor, and Power in the Age of Automation. Uh, Carl, to begin, what exactly is the technology trap?
1: The technology trap refers to the period up until the first Industrial Revolution and the fact that during this period of time, The politically powerful had little to gain and much to lose from the introduction of any technology that threatened uh, their interests. And and as a result uh, of this, economic growth was stagnant for a long time. So, in particular, the craft guilds would have nothing that replaced their uh, skills, jobs, and incomes. And and as a result of that, the politically powerful uh, governments um, typically sided with the craft guilds and um, fearing uh, political and social unrest as a consequence of that.
0: Are you suggesting then that the dominant classes were essentially Luddites?
1: Well, in a way, they certainly were. Uh, I think, I mean, for different reasons. So uh, the craftsmans were certainly Luddites, you know, the, uh, the people who smashed machinery. Uh, during the Industrial Revolution in England. And in fact, ludism was widespread, right? So uh, ludism has become this popular expression uh, referring to particular episodes. Uh, But machinery, uh, workers smashing machines uh, occurred in Germany, in France, and several locations in China, in India, and so on and so forth. So this was actually uh, the current state of affairs um, up until the 19th century.
0: Why do you think the term Luddite has taken on such a pejorative meaning given, as you suggest, that most people were against technological change in the 19th century um, and it might be said that the same is true today?
1: Well, I think it's because of the experience of the past 200 years. I mean. Uh, it's it's noteworthy well, if we go back that you know common status ten- 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 of the time like Marx, Engels, uh Thomas Maltus, uh David Ricardo, very different people and uh, very different economists, all agreed on one thing, and that was that mechanisation couldn't boost um wages. Um, and the experience of the late nineteenth century and certainly the 20th century showed essentially that that was wrong. So as automation progressed, as people acquired new skills and adjusted and shifted into new jobs, uh, people were bet- made a lot better off, uh, not just in terms of incomes, uh, but also in terms of you know uh, the quality uh, of working life in general. So not so long ago, a lot. People worked in coal mines where they wouldn't see daylight for weeks, cave-ins and explosions were part of everyday working life, and lung disease is often not part of the work pa- package. And Today, most people in the industrial West uh, work in air-conditioned offices, so working conditions have improved a lot as well. So I think a lot of people that look uh, with a very dismissive view on the Luddites take this very long-run perspective, uh, what they miss is that the leaders were, were essentially right, because they were not the ones that benefited from technological change. Wages were stagnant or even falling for second dec- uh, seven decades as the Industrial Revolution took off. Some of them you know, may argue uh, with, high, with the benefits of hindsight could have taken some comfort in that the next generations were better off as a result of this, uh, but they had no way of knowing. So let's
0: fast forward a couple of hundred years because the point of your book is not the industrial revolution, but today's digital revolution, particularly the, the smart machine, the AI revolution of today. Um, do you think that there are a lot of, uh, close analogies between the early part of the 21st century and the early part of the 19th century?
1: Yes, and that is uh, the key theme of the book. I mean, that is not to suggest that you know everything is history and repeat. There are many differences as well. Um, but many of the economic trends are very similar. So during the 19th century, we saw hollowing out of middle-income jobs. We saw that wages fell behind uh, output growth, uh, which is a different way of saying that the labour share of income uh, was falling. And, and we saw a lot of um, not just economic but also social and political polarization, uh, quite similar to uh, what we're seeing today. Uh, The big difference of course is that the Luddites didn't have any uh, political rights Right, Uh, property ownership remained a uh, requirement for voting throughout the 19th century and as a result of that um, they voted with sticks and stones Uh, today people can show at the general elections um, and what we've been seeing and uh, over the past four decades or so, is that uh, as economies have deindustrialized, um, a particular group that is prime-age men with no more than a high school degree, who would have flocked into the factories before the age of automation, uh, their wages have consistently falling or been falling over this period of time. So for all about the talk about inequality and the real uh, issue is actually that a significant group has been made worse off in the labor market as a result of technological change, as the Luddites were. Um, and they've also, uh, to some extent, lost political voice. So if you go back to the 50s and 60s, you see that uh, high-income voters tend to be associated with the political right. You see that low-education, low-income voters tend to be associated with the political left. And that changes from the 1780s 80s onwards as the political left become um, increasingly associated with high education voters and um, so uh, in sum what has happened is that this group has been left more or less uh, 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 disenfranchised uh, by the mainstream political parties and the populists are very effectively tapping into their anger
0: is one difference and, and and i hope you'll correct me here if i'm i'm wrong but is is the is there one difference that um or, or maybe this is a similarity that it's not entirely clear what people are going to do in the AI revolution. Of course, I'm sure you will say, well, it wasn't entirely clear what people were going to do when they left the land at the beginning of the 19th century.
1: No, I think that's absolutely right. And I think what people will do... Um, I mean, to some extent, certainly it depends on what the technology does and whether it replaces people's skills or augments them in a happy way uh, that allows them to earn better wages and increasing their bargaining power. Um, but uh, it is not entirely clear how this will play out in terms of political responses. I mean, we struggle to predict the outcome of the uh, sort of next general election and the very same day. Uh, so it's very hard uh, to predict uh, future political events. And a key point of the book is that you know, we we tend to, there's been a lot of studies, um, in part due to my own fault, um, that um, uh, focus very much on long-run trends in technology and that sort of try to predict uh, what the labor market will look like in uh, 30 years or so. Um, And to my own defense, we put out this study a while ago, estimating that 47% of American jobs um, are at risk of being automated. Yeah, Um, and
0: that's a study that I've quoted many times and I know many other people. It's become the most authoritative study and warning about the implication on employment of the automated revolution, of the digital revolution.
1: Right. but well, just, just to clarify, so what we say in this study is not, you know, that any of these jobs will be automated. What we're trying to to say is that, you know, given the current pie of employment, how many jobs of those are potentially at risk merely from a technolo- technological capabilities point of view? So we're looking at the potential scope of automation. And there are a lot of economic and social factors that will ter- determine uh, the pace um, of uh, adoption. And I think a mistake that a lot of people made, and we actually discussed some of this in the paper, didn't get any attention though, but we do mention it, um, that you know, social and political factors play a huge role. Um, and if progress was inevitable somehow, the Industrial Revolution would have happened a bit earlier uh, in the history of mankind. If progress uh, and adoption of new technologies would be inevitable, every country today would be rich. Um, so it's pretty clear from the historical record and from the present uh, sort of current state of affairs that technological progress is not inevitable. Um, and that is uh, indeed uh, the key message of the book.
0: And of course, it's a, a really important message that uh, technological progress isn't inevitable just through technology because of the complexity and somewhat arbitrariness of political and, and, and social progress. So, standing back, Carl, um, of course, we don't know everything about the future. It's, much of it is, is very speculative, but putting on your, your government cap, what should the government be doing in terms of regulating big tech, regulating AI and steering it in a way that will benefit the population citizens rather than just small groups of technologists
1: so i think we need to be very humble about our ability to direct technological change Uh, usually that hasn't worked very well from a top-down approach in terms of you know steering in which direction innovation should go and i think countries that are behind the frontiers of technology that adopt technologies that have already been put in use elsewhere they are to some extent able to do that by you know playing catch up but if we when we expand the frontiers of technology into the unknown uh, i think it's very hard to steer it Uh, what we can do though is that we can help people adjust to technological change and i think there are certain patterns and that they tend to repeat themselves. Um, And the way that people have adjusted to technological change in the past is by A, acquiring new skills, and B, moving to uh, where new jobs um, are emerging. Um, And I think there's a tendency to focus on one big idea, like universal basic income. Uh, But in fact, I think there are a lot of smaller things and that can be seen as minor individually that would actually make a big difference um, collectively.
0: So uh, what are the new jobs of the future, uh, Carl, in, in in this age of automation? Are they the the, the low-pay, uh, precarious jobs of Uber drivers um, and Airbnb renters? Or are they going to be new categories of well-paid, high-skilled jobs? In an age of the smart machine,
1: well, I think both. But I mean, if we go back to the 19th century, and I mean, if I would have asked my great grandmother, "What do you think, you know, um, uh, the generation of your great grandchildren are going to be working as?" She wouldn't have said, "Well, I think." they're going to be software engineers or uh, working on the technology or uh, probably be hot yoga instructors and uh, travel agents and so on, right? Uh, And in similar fashion, I think we're ill-placed of predicting exactly what the jobs of the future will be. I do think there are certain patterns. So machines still perform quite poorly when it comes to complex social interactions. Uh, They do okay-ish in basic text communication, but even there, they are not great. Uh, and they're nowhere, nowhere near outperforming us in in-person type of uh, social interactions. Um, and I think at the same time, uh, we see new technologies uh, creating entirely uh, new jobs in tech industries, like the jobs for big data architects, uh, AI auditors, uh, Android developers, and so on and so forth. Um, and what, what happens when a new tech job is created um, in a place like the Bay Area, a person goes out in the local service economy, goes to the hairdresser, goes grocery shopping, takes a taxi and so on. And that creates on average five new jobs in the local uh, service economy. Um, and some of these will be new jobs like Zumba structures, which only appeared uh, quite le- recently. So we tend to care m- more about our fitness and health, uh, the wealthier uh, we get and it turns out. Uh, The problem though is that that creates a lot of pressure on housing in those places because as economic activity becomes increasingly clustered, we need to build more in the places where uh, the new jobs are emerging. That has failed to happen. As a a result, uh, the main beneficiaries of this have actually been owners of real estate in those places. Uh, what's even worse is that that has actually kept out a lot of people from where the growth is happening. Uh, which means that productivity growth has been slower than it otherwise would have which means that because people can't move into the productive sectors of the economy and uh, that their wages are falling behind and it's leading to growing inequality as well so a lot of us uh, actually has to do with the geography and um, of new jobs
0: and on the political front how should we or uh, uh, how should we be confronting Nostalgic populism this idea that yesterday was always better and we want to go back to the certainties of the past. How are we going to build political parties that embrace the future, not on the part of a a, a tiny minority of technologists, but for everybody?
1: Well, I think we need to combat it with nostalgic pragmatism, uh, actually winning the argument and showing that we have these solutions. And the solutions are very practical. So A, you need to get rid of you know zoning restrictions in those locations to actually allow companies and and, and public institutions to build more. Uh, to keep house prices down. We need to do more in terms of investing infrastructure to actually connect places. So where I grew up in southern Sweden, for example, Malmö was a city that specialized in building ships. And as the shipyard closed down, it was doing poorly for a long time. Um, up until the construction of the bridge to Copenhagen, essentially, which allowed people to stay put in Malmo where housing was cheap, commuting to Copenhagen where there was an abundance of better-paying jobs. and Most of them would spend uh, most of their uh, the, uh, earnings locally where they lived, which gave a boost to the local service economy there and created a virtuous cycle. And I think these are just sort of, uh, f- a few of many, many uh, examples or many seemingly relatively minor things that governments um, can do uh, to help. Um, and I think it's increasingly clear that the populists don't have the solutions. Um, and uh, I think the only way of actually dealing with, uh, with their appeal uh, over the medium term is to show that we have the solution.
0: Do we need new political parties? You, you talked about a nostalgic pragmatism. Are there uh, new pragmatic politicians or parties or ideologies that you think will be effective vehicles for driving us forward rather than backwards in the 21st century?
1: Well, I think here in the UK we um, do certainly need new political parties. I'm slightly hesitant to say we because I'm actually Swedish, um, but I have lived here for 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 nearly ten years now. Um, uh, no, what 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 we're seeing is very much that I mean, both Labour and Conservatives are essentially split, and the um, sort of a new political dividing line has become localism versus uh, globalism, and that is tearing across. Parties, so I do think that we need uh, uh, new parties, and uh, indeed the political landscape is to some extent already uh, being uh, reshaped. Um, but probably that's different from country to country.
0: Well, you're from uh, you're from Sweden, uh, and Scandinavia tends to be the canary in the coal mine when it comes to innovation, politically, culturally, sometimes technologically. Is there anything happening in Scandinavia that might Um, inspire other pragmatic futurists of building new political parties and organizations?
1: Well, I think in Scandinavia it's actually going the same direction broadly as many other countries. So the populists are on the rise. Uh, You see that the Swedish Democrats have been uh, doing better in regions that have been more exposed to automation. Um, And uh, we see the same hauling out middle income jobs. We see wages falling behind productivity, and uh, and so on and so forth. Uh, but to much lesser a degree than you see, for example, in the United States. So it's clear that institutions uh, matter a great deal. And uh, I mean, you can see this uh, in more extreme cases, like if you look at Saudi Arabia, and Norway, right? Both have money coming out of the ground. Um, But it's being very differently shared because, you know, these countries have very different institutions and uh, uh, technology uh, like oil and natural resources interacts with those institutions.
0: You're not cheering me up, Carl. I wanted you to cheer me up, but you're not. Uh, It doesn't seem as if at the moment, at least, we're really responding very effectively. Um, You're suggesting some, some solutions, some remedies. But there aren't any political movements. Populism is on the rise everywhere. People are nostalgic for an imaginary past. Technologists are increasingly unpopular, particularly in Silicon Valley. Indeed, we have this sort of aggregation of monopolistic power um, in in technological terms. Is it possible that this this is all going to end very, very badly in social, cultural revolution, in bloodshed on the street?
1: Well, it would be foolish to exclude the possibility, but, I mean, let's go back to the Luddites, right? So at the time, uh, ordinary people didn't have political voice. There was no educational system to help people adjust. Uh, the multitian logic persisted. So, you know, most people believed that uh, income growth in per capita terms wasn't even possible, and as a result of that, there was no need for a welfare system to, uh, you know, help people who struggle to uh, adjust. It was uh, deemed counterproductive, and if anything, um, and two hundred years later, uh, you know. Uh, that puts the concerns of that time in um, in perspective and and I think perspective is what you need and uh, if we go back historically we've seen that you know we've been through many of these debates before and I think if you lived in this period of time it was very hard Potentially see a way out because you were stuck in the echo chamber of the time you lived in, um, and I think what we need is perspective. And what uh, you know, history shows us is that we are actually quite good at coming up with uh, solutions. Uh, you know, uh, technological progress can be enormously disruptive in the short run, and there is no guarantee that we deal with it effectively. Uh, but at least the historical record should provide us with some hope.
0: It does, but it, doesn't it provide us with the lesson that regulation and the role of the state is essential? You poo pooed that, I think, a little bit earlier in our conversation. But doesn't the whole history of the Industrial Revolution, with the creation of social safety nets and changes in the law when it comes to unionization and the organization of labor um, and the many other institutional reforms that went with the the industrial revolution doesn't that point to the fact that the only real change is going to happen through the state through regulation because you certainly can't rely on the entrepreneurs you can't rely on silicon valley to fix this they're interested in their own profitability not in everybody else's
1: yeah i think that's uh, broadly right Uh, i do i mean if if we look historically, it's clear that regulation has played a role. I mean, you know, when the automobile was invented, we didn't even have traffic laws. Uh, it's true that, uh, you know, governments pushed for rural electrification and making that te- uh, technology available to everyone. Uh, it's also true that, you know, Labour fought for democracy, but that was more of a Bottom-up movement that started to demand, uh, you know, democratic rights, rather than you know, uh, governments doing it from the top down. And so I think you know, uh, it's a matter of uh, clearly adjusting our institutions, investing in education, doing a lot of things that we've done in the past. Uh, when we speak about regulation, though, it's, in the end of the day, it always you know depends on what the regulation is, uh, because. The, people, the ones that are writing the regulations are, tend to be the interest groups uh, of today, uh, and those interest groups uh, may not write the re- uh, regulations in a way that benefits, uh, you know, future business and and startups and so on. Uh, so I think that there is a you know tendency to overemphasize uh, the regulation bit. I think we need to focus more on helping people adjust in general, in you know. Uh, and in making sure that the bits of the welfare state that work well uh, continue to work well um, and build upon that.
0: What is your view of the regulatory efforts of the EU to manage uh, particularly American technology, American AI companies? Do you think that the Europeans are pioneering a responsible regulatory regime, or do you think they're simply... Um, pursuing the interests of European tech and that they are reactionary.
1: Well, I think um, public institutions and government unfortunately tend to be reactionary in general. So, I mean, when Britain was technology leader, the US wasn't very keen on intellectual property rights, for example. And now the United States is the sort of overall champion of intellectual property rights because it's the technology leader. Uh, Europe today doesn't have uh, a lot of big tech companies. So, uh, you know, it has less of a vested interest uh, in terms of, in uh, you know, regulation. Um, but I think, I mean, the more promising things that you know Europe can do. So, if you look at initiatives like Tim Berners-Lee's Solid, uh, which essentially aims, aims at de- decentralizing the internet, give people you know a stake uh, what their own data is concerned. People can you know decide themselves whether to share it, whether to sell it, whether to keep it private. And I think Europe can be a sort of uh, play a more leading role in shaping the technology of the internet rather than just doing it in regulatory terms.
0: And finally, Carl, um, I'd like your uh, opinion on the Chinese model, um, which has a, obviously a strong state element, which is anti-democratic, but also pro-technology. Is this a model that could win out in the 21st century?
1: Well, I think time will tell. Uh, I mean, China's been growing at a tremendous pace for uh, a number of decades now, and that is not going to continue forever. Uh, And I think we will learn how stable Chinese institutions are when growth uh, actually slows. Uh, I think my impression of the historical record is that as people grow richer, they tend to demand more political uh, voice. Uh, and I don't think that China is going to be different in that regard. And um, so I wouldn't necessarily put my money on the Chinese model. And the Soviets tried to, you know, design the Soviet man. Uh, maybe the Chinese can do it better with modern technology in the social credit system and so on and so forth. Uh, but I do think that uh, uh, the general tendency is for people as to the- Go richer, to demand more political voice. Uh, I do think that in a period of time where the economy is performing uh, very well and providing opportunity and uh, there is less of a social uh, response. But um, um, that is not going to, as I mentioned earlier, that is not going to continue forever. So it's very hard to say how, how, how this will play out.
0: So your man is still on Western democracy surviving this one?
1: I would say so, yes. It's, it's, we need to, I mean, in the end of the day, there's a tendency to say that, you know, we take this one case and it's worked very well and we look at it with a, uh, with a microscope. But if you look at, you know, most countries on average, which are not democracies, they haven't performed very well economically. And I think it's, you know, it's an illusion to extrapolate or well, extrapolating from one case doesn't get you to a realistic scenario. Now, we've got a real big favor that we need to ask. If you like this episode and you've been enjoying the other interviews, we'd sure love it if you head over to the iTunes podcast app and leave us a review. If you'd like to hear more episodes, there's a subscribe button there and in all of the platforms like Spotify, Overcast and Google Play. So head over to one of those, subscribe, leave us a review, share it with your friends if you'd like, and we'd appreciate it so much. Be sure to check out our next episode every Thursday. And from all of us at Keenan Democracy, we hope you have a fantastic day.